Right. We're back on air. Yes, we are back on air with episode two of Once Upon a Time in the Ashes, the podcast that celebrates the One Ashes Test Wonders. I'll be your host. I'm Graham Barrett. Last time out, we spoke with Keith Slater of Midland, Western Australia, and heard his memories of playing in the 58 to 59 Ashes series. And what a fantastic first guest he was. That first episode is available in all the usual places, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, plus our website, onceuponatimeintheashes.com. As well as the podcasts, the website has profiles and photos of all the players we are featuring, there's a great team photo from Keith's time at the Haywood Cricket Club featuring Gary Sobers, Sonny Ramadin, Sec Pepper and Frank Worrell. There are extracts from the 1960 Wisden, including the tour match between Western Australia and the MCC and the third test at Sydney in which Keith played. And if Keith finds that elusive letter from Bradman, I'll put that on there too. Don't forget you can get in touch with the show by emailing cricket at onceuponatimeintheashes.com your thoughts, comments and memories of anything we touch on are always welcome. Right, that's the admin out of the way. Let's get on with episode two. We need to jump ahead to the 1964 Ashes series in England to find our next one Ashes test wonder, Ken Taylor of Yorkshire. Ken shares much in common with Keith Slater. Both were equally happy on a football field as a cricket pitch Ken would cast aside his cricket whites at the end of the summer and replace them with the stripes of Huddersfield Town. But Ken had a third string to his bow. Find out more very soon in the main feature. Unfortunately, Ken is not in the best of health at present and therefore not up to being interviewed. But we do have the next best thing in the form of his biographer, the cricket historian Stephen Chalk. Here's a little taster of our conversation. Cricket is a game of the most terrifying stresses, with more luck about it than any other game. They call it a team game, but in fact, it is the loneliest game of all. But before we hear about Ken's remarkable life, let's take our customary dive into the Ashes archive. And today it takes us to the 1954-55 Ashes series. Len Hutton captained the tourists and became the first professional to lead an MCC tour to Australia. The five-match series was won by England 3-1, but more importantly, it yielded two of our one Ashes Test Wonders. We'll hear more about Keith Andrew in our Wicketkeeper special in a few episodes' time. Today, we're going to focus on Bill Watson of Waverley, St George, New South Wales, and for some fleeting moments, Australia. Warren Saunders was his running mate at the top of the order, and Warren was kind enough to give me his memories of Bill and their time playing together for St George and New South Wales. He started off his cricket with the Waverley Club in Sydney, and that was a, it's a famous old club, Waverley, and they had a lot of good players over the years, going back to the Jack Fingleton era, you know, that, and Alan Kipax. And he came across to our club at St George in that year, I think. I think he came across to us in about 54. Yes, Bill started playing for the famous St George Club in 1953-54. It's a club with some serious pedigree. Five players before Bill 
and nine since have gone on to wear the baggy green after first turning out at Hurstville Oval for St George. The names read like a who's who of Australian cricket. Arthur Morris, Ray Lindwell, Norm O'Neill, Brian Booth, and more latterly, Stuart McGill and Josh Hazelwood. And not forgetting their most famous son, Sir Donald Bradman himself. But back to Bill. What were his strengths as a batsman? Uh, he was he was a beautiful player to watch. Everyone said that. He was he was a little fellow and he was extremely wristy. He and I played with the same club at St George. For, we opened the batting for 20 years together. So we knew each other's cricket very well. He was a, a great player to watch. I used to love watching him bat. Had all of the shots. He was he he certainly he certainly could never be accused of being a slow player. He was he scored quickly, always scored pretty quickly. He was very good behind point, very good square cutter and late cutter, good off his toes, and it was a, he was a good hooker. He was a good hooker. Got him out a bit like a bird. So was I. I hooked a lot, but <laughs> you get a lot of runs off it, but it gets you out a lot too. <laughs> In 1954, aged 23, Bill made the step up to first-class cricket for New South Wales in their final Sheffield Shield game of the season against South Australia. And at the SCG, where he had watched Sid Barnes and Bradman both score 234 in the same innings in 1946, he rose to the occasion, scoring 82 in an opening partnership of 161 with Ron Briggs. Start the next season well, he could be in the frame for Ashes selection, get some runs against Queensland in the opening game and he'd be playing against the MCC. While he was left out of the season opener against Queensland and working in the family potato business at the market instead of preparing for Hutton and the might of the MCC, that was until Ron Briggs dropped out with sinus problems. He got the call. Was he available to play against the Englishman? It was an opportunity not to be sneezed at. Here's Warren Saunders again with what happened next. I didn't play in that game. That was just before I got selected for New South Wales. But it was a brilliant innings, absolutely brilliant. And he was a brilliant player, but he he uh, he wasn't all that consistent. But that innings against the MCC was a great innings, yeah. It certainly was. Bill took the attack to Frank Tyson, Alec Bedser, Peter Loder, and Bob Appleyard, scoring a scintillating 155 and putting on 161 for the third wicket with his captain Keith Miller. Len Hutton called it the best innings we saw in the summer when he bumped into Bill years later. And remember, this was only his second first-class innings and his maiden century in any kind of cricket. That sparkling knock propelled him into the second Test 12 at his beloved Sydney cricket ground. He wasn't to make the team that day, but his debut duly came in the fifth Test, also at the SCG, after a further two first-class games. Unfortunately, this was probably a test to avoid. England had already retained the Ashes in the previous test in Adelaide and torrential rain meant no play was possible until the afternoon of the fourth day. This was a six-day test match. Bill finally got a bat on day five, saw off Tyson and Statham and then played on in Johnny Wardle's fourth over. Australia were even made to follow on on the final day and Bill managed a further three runs before being caught by Graveney off Statham. Was Bill disappointed when Warren welcomed him back to St George? Yeah, he was disappointed. Bill, Bill he, he was an interesting bloke. He, he worked in, he, his, his father had a business in the Sydney markets. He was a produce agent. And Bill went basically straight from school into the business. And it was a very lucrative business in the markets. But Bill worked so hard, like getting up at three o'clock in the morning and going to the markets and carrying potatoes and... You know, he was only a little fella too. He was a small bloke. 
that that was hard. And a lot of the time, Billy was tired. He'd get tired because he, of, of the hours that he worked, you know. And Bill could be a temperamental and stubborn character. Yeah, he, he was. He was well. I, I use this word nicely. He was a bit temperamental. Great fellow. A great, you know. John Rogers would tell you, great a great bloke to have in your team and all that. Funny fella. But he was. He was temperamental. He was. Yes, he was. Uh, you wouldn't go near him if he got out early for a while. You'd let him settle, and then he'd be all right. We had a funny situation many years ago. It was a semi-final. And we played it against Western Suburbs, who had Davidson in there. He wasn't playing this game, Dave, but they had a good side. They batted first, and we went in late on the first day. And we put on about 40 very quickly, but the shadows started to come. It was a nice day, but the shadows came across the field. Billy appealed against the light. And in those days, you could do that, as you know. And the umpire, the umpire who was a state umpire, he laughed at him. He said, Billy, you've got to be kidding Anyway, the next day, of about with, with about five minutes play left, Billy's, Billy's clean bowl by the they brought a spinner on him. He bowled Billy out. Well, Billy was livid, and on the way off, on the way off the, to the dressing room, Billy's giving this um who he knew well, the umpire, he knew very well. He gave him a serve. Billy got stuck into it. Now, do you think I'm joking? He said well, that's something like that. Anyway, the the umpire came into I was the captain at St George and. The umpire came into the dressing room at the end of the day's play and he said, came over to me and he said, I want an apology from Billy Watson. And I said, oh, look, Ted, you know what he's like. He's, he's just uptight. Look, he, give him a quarter of an hour and he'll probably come and say, sorry, no, I want it now. And Billy told him to get so-and-so, you know, which wasn't a, wasn't a smart thing to do. Then Billy was um, reported to the New South Wales Cricket Association. We had to go to a special meeting so we go in there and I said to Billy, I, I drove him in. I said on the way, look, Bill, we know all these blokes that are on this committee. Just go in and say you're sorry. He said, no, I'm not going to say I'm sorry because I wasn't sorry. So anyway, they suspended him for a match. So that was the sort of fellow you know, that he that he is a little firebrand. Yeah, we often laughed about it in latter years. You know, you could laugh about those things later on. <laughs> no Australian player in the 20th century played fewer first-class matches before making their test debut than Bill Watson and his four matches. And yet at 24, he had played his first and last Ashes test. He did go on the tour to the West Indies following the Ashes series in 1955, and he played in three of the five tests. But he couldn't really get going and managed a top score of only 30. However, he did score 122 against a strong Barbados team before the fourth test. Centuries against Tyson and Sobers within six months was a clear indication of his batting calibre. Let's get back to Warren Saunders. The next Ashes series was only a year away in 1956. Was he or Bill in the running for the tour to England? Uh, I was probably a bit more than Billy, but uh, I got injured. I, I, I made runs in months. Yeah, I, I, see, I, when you say I went close, I, I, yes, I would have been on the shortlist for sure. And I made runs in my first game on a, on a very seeming wicket, which and a lot of the, the stars failed. But... And then I got runs in. Uh, I got runs in, in the shoot. We went round the states playing. Yeah, I was doing well, and then I injured my back, and I missed a game or two. And it just sort of, and uh, uh, blokes. Uh, there was a fellow called Rutherford, who played for Western Australia. I don't think he played a Test match, but he he got the nod. Where I, I might have gone close at that stage, but you know, it's water under the bridge. <laughs> yeah. 
Why did further test match selection elude Bill and Warren? Uh, well, well, you know, Graham. I mean, it's not it's not sour grapes from me or any. I mean, I, I had enough chances to go further if I'd been good enough. But the thing is, this New South Wales was uh, to get a start to go to higher honours. People sensibly, unless they were the real top key players, uh, went to, went in like Les Favre went to South Australia. He wouldn't have Les wouldn't have got into the New South Wales team. He was well down the list. Put it that way. And he went to South Australia. And they were a very weak team in that year, in that era, South Australia. They were very poor. And he got in, played at Adelaide Over, which was a batting paradise. And Les made the most of his opportunities and played well, played interstate cricket for many, many years. Captain South Australia and played for Australia. Bob Simpson. Bob Simpson went to Western Australia. He was battling to stay in the New South Wales team. And you know, that, that, that New South Wales won the Shield, Sheffield Shield, eight years in a row. You know, and it was it was really Victoria was the main challenger. Fellows from Sydney went to play in Adelaide. Colin Pinch was one. Um, Graham Hole, who played for Australia, he went there. And I had offers to to go to both Victoria and Western Australia. I, I had a good job, which I'm glad I stayed where I was because I I did all right with it all. You know, but those that wanted to further their cricket. Bear in mind there was no, absolutely no money in the game in those days. They they uh, took the plunge and good luck to them. They, a lot of them then played for Australia. If Billy Watson would have gone into state, he would have been a permanent state player. Uh, but he, he was never a permanent, like me, he wasn't a permanent New South Wales player. We played for 10 years or so, but we, we were in and out of the team. Uh, when the test players came back, it was almost a, it was almost a test team. New South Wales. It was. Just take a look at the New South Wales team that Bill Watson played for against the MCC in 1954. Nine of the 11 had played or went on to play Ashes cricket for Australia. Arthur Morris had already captained Australia. Richie Benno and Bob Simpson would skip at the national side in years to come. And then there's the New South Wales captain that day, Keith Miller, who many felt should have been added to that list. A big thank you to Warren Saunders for sharing those memories of Bill Watson. Warren spoke of New South Wales' dominance in state cricket during his time. New South Wales won the Sheffield Shield 12 times in 15 years between 1952 and 1966. During a similar period, the preeminent county side of the day in England was Yorkshire, who won seven out of ten county championship titles between 1959 and 1968, which is as good a reason as any to shift our attention to Ken Taylor, who played for Yorkshire between 1953 and 1968. The Yorkshire team, like New South Wales, was littered with international players. When Ken made his debut for the White Rose in 1953, it was because Len Hutton, Willie Watson and Johnny Wardle were playing in the Lord's Test. Furthermore, Norman Yardley was on test selection duty, Brian Close was unfit and Bob Appleyard was recovering from TB. To draw a further comparison with Bill Watson, there was a sense of unfulfilled promise about Ken's test career. Bill's youthful promise stalled and he played in only four test matches for Australia. Ken only managed three for England, although many thought he merited more. It's time to hear more about Ken's fascinating life and career. Ken Taylor was an attacking opening batsman for Yorkshire and England and a no-nonsense centre-half for Huddersfield Town. He scored over 13,000 first-class runs with 16 centuries, 
and took 131 wickets at an average of 28. He made his test debut for England against India in 1959 and his one Ashes appearance came in his final test at Headingley in 1964. Let's hear from the cricket writer and historian Stephen Chalk. I first met Ken Taylor in the early months of 1997. I was writing my first cricket book which involved me driving around England interviewing old county cricketers of the 1950s. And somebody said, Ken Taylor would be a good person for you to interview. I knew nothing much about him. And I drove all the way up to Norfolk, met him at his house. I, had, I knew he'd played many years for Yorkshire and had a few games for England. And I had a bit of a feeling he'd played some football, which was more substantial than I realised. He'd played for 12, 15 years for Huddersfield, who were a good team, spending some of that time in the first division and had played for England A and England under 23. But what I hadn't grasped was that while he was playing cricket for Yorkshire and football for Huddersfield, he was a full-time art student and won a place at the Slade in London, one of the most prestigious art colleges of them all. And when I went to visit him at his house, he spent some time showing me all his artwork and it was stunning. It took me a while to get to grips with the thought that somebody could be not only playing both football and cricket at such a high level, but doing it while studying full time as an artist. Unbelievable in the present age. You couldn't do two of those, let alone all three. But there he was, a very modest man, been teaching in Norfolk. You'd get no idea chatting to him that he had achieved all that he had done. And he was wonderful company. And I got him to provide illustrations for my first two books, drawings of the cricketers I was writing about. And I got to know him better through that. And then I thought, we ought to be able to do a book, which will be part art book and part memories of his days playing sport at the level he did. And so we sat down and did that. And he wasn't a natural raconteur. You had to tease the material out of him, but it had been such a fascinating life. And of course, we put all the artwork in the book as well, which mm. made it especially delightful to work on because you could bounce the memories off against the paintings and the drawings. And a collaboration that I greatly enjoyed. Yeah, absolutely. So the two obvious questions I have from that, as you say, it's, it's unusual, though not unheard of, to manage two different sports. So I'm interested how he did manage those two sports in terms of the season and how he managed the overlap. And then if we move on to the artwork, how did that happen? Because that is more extraordinary. And who pushed him into that? Well, the first thing to say is that he left school at 15 and the offer of a place at Huddersfield arose immediately. And his father, who'd been a mill worker, just an ordinary working class family, he said, you must have a trade. You can't just play sport all your life and insisted on him going to college and pursuing another of his talents, the art. So that's how it started. His father also had the foresight when he signed terms at Huddersfield to insist that cricket would take priority in the overlap seasons if Yorkshire were in with a chance of winning the county championship. Well, in those years, 
Yorkshire always thought they were in with a chance of winning the county championship. So, and many years, that's what happened. The football didn't start so early. The cricket didn't go on so late. So you could finish the football and start the cricket without it being a problem. End of April, last football, beginning of May, first cricket. At the other end of the season, there'd be a three or four week overlap. Ken would stay with the cricket if Yorkshire were in with a chance of the title, but he'd go back to the football if they weren't. It was an arrangement that worked pretty well. The one manager at Huddersfield who didn't like it was Bill Shankly, who had a time at Huddersfield. He was a Scotsman and he disapproved entirely. And he said to Ken one day that he thought cricket was a lassie's game. In those days, talking to Ken about the football is extraordinary. I also talked to another chap who started the same day at Huddersfield, who was the same age as Ken, Ray Wilson, who played in the England World Cup winning team in 1966. He talked a lot also about the setup in football training in those days. He said that there were, at some clubs, the managers didn't do any ball work during the week. It was all just running and keep fit work because they had this philosophy that if the players didn't see the ball from Monday to Friday, they'd be hungry for it on Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ken was, got into the Yorkshire cricket team at 18, and he was still 18, going at that stage to Huddersfield College of Art. And one Thursday evening, he was with his cricket bag, walking from the college to the bus station to catch a bus to go to Headingley to um, go to an indoor net up there and a reporter from the local paper caught up with him and said you're playing for Huddersfield on Saturday at Anfield so he's making his debut at the age of 18 wow. for Huddersfield first game 46,000 people roaring yeah. away coming out of the tunnel he said that they took a coach across to Liverpool and the manager at the time Andy Beattie used to park the coach a mile from the ground and make them walk in <laughs> with the spectators to loosen them up. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you can't imagine that now. Uh, Ken himself, so within that setup, Ken spent the week at art college, yeah. and his training consisted on running lunchtimes and evenings. Uh, he didn't do any ball work, and he just kept fit by running and joined up on the Saturday. Which sport did he prefer of the two? If either sport was going badly, he preferred the other one. <laughs> he said, he said if he wasn't scoring runs, he would be thinking, oh, never mind, in three weeks I'll be back to football. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think he always liked doing them all. And I think in some ways that, got a, that stopped him from achieving as much in any one as he could have done because mm. he always had that fallback of the others. Several mm. people had said to me that if he just had the one and concentrated on it, he could have gone a lot further. People said that to me about his art. They certainly said it about his football and about his cricket. It did become a problem at the Slade because he needed to take the summer term off and they didn't have an arrangement for that. So in the end, he never finished the course at the Slade. The professor there at the time, William Coldstream, he was a great believer in realist art. It was a reaction against some of the movements that had the abstract art, the vorticism, futurism, and he wanted people who could draw urban scenes and real life scenes. And he was very attracted to Ken's artwork okay. uh, because he came from the background he did and he could do that side mm. of things. He had it all as an artist. 
perhaps he lacked a little in self-belief and perhaps he lacked a little bit in ambition. He had so many gifts, he was happy just to go through life enjoying them, I think. You've touched on what Shankly thought about cricket. What do you think the Yorkshire team thought about him pursuing this art career? I think that would have been easier within the world of cricket than it was mm. within the world of football. I mean, cricket, <laughs> to be fair, is a bit more middle class than football, isn't it? You know, mm. I mean, according to Ray Wilson, Ken used to have a handkerchief hanging out of his pocket when he played football. <laughs> but of course, mm. Ken, he was a, a halfback and he was a rugged tackler. He was hard, really hard tackler. In fact, when I said to his brother Jeff on one occasion that people didn't practice with the ball during the week, Jeff said, we, Ken didn't ever play with the ball. <laughs> it was all tackling with him, you know. Yeah. Having said that, he did once... Jeff, I would just quickly mention Jeff, because this is an ordinary working-class yeah. family in Huddersfield, living in a crowded little terraced house that Ken took me to. His father was out of work for some of the time before the war as a mill worker. Jeff and he shared a bed till Ken was 11. Ken went on to be who he was. Jeff also played football for Huddersfield, then got transferred to Fulham, playing alongside Jimmy Hill and Johnny Haynes and Bobby Robson. He got a geography degree at London University. And having completed that and thought he'd go into teaching, changed his mind and went to the Royal College of Music and became an opera singer sang at Glyndebourne with Pavarotti and finished up Professor of Music at Glasgow Academy of Music. Yeah. Uh, and these are two boys from a working class home in Huddersfield with all this range of gifts. Yeah. I mean, any of these one things on their own would be superb achievements. Playing for Huddersfield, yes. playing cricket yes. for Yorkshire, let alone England, yeah. you know, singing with Pavarotti. But <laughs> to combine all of these in the same family, I mean, it's truly unique. Yes, it is. Ken had a nice cutting from one of the newspapers in the mid-1950s, which called him the most wanted man in England or something like that. We put some lovely pictures in the book. I got him to talk about the pictures, and there's one of Gary Sobers, which he's done, and he, at the bottom he says, I got him out in both innings at Middlesbrough once. I bowled him leg stick in the second innings, and I can still see him throwing his head back, as if to say, fancy getting out to that ducking. <laughs> <laughs> OK, let's move things on with regards to Ken and talk about his England career. We'll focus on his one Ashes test in 1964, but this wasn't his first taste of international cricket, was it? He played in 1959, didn't he? He did. 58-9 was the year everything crashed to earth for England. England had gone from summer 52 to summer 58, not having lost a series, having beaten Australia three times running. And we went out to Australia with what we thought was one of the best teams we'd ever sent out there. And we lost the series 4-0. We complained about the bowling, the bowling actions of some of the Australians. Mm -hmm. But in truth... The other aspect of that is that some of the team had got a bit old. The fielding wasn't as good as it could have been, and it was time to renew. So the summer of 59, England cleaned out quite a lot of the side and brought in some younger players to have a look at them. And Ken opened the batting in the first test match and the second test match, partnered both times by Arthur Milton, mm -hmm. who actually went further than Ken in that he played both cricket and football for England. He had a much shorter football career, gave up much younger. The two didn't overlap so much, but he had a spell at Arsenal and had one game for England playing mm -hmm. on the wing. So the two of them opened the batting in the first two tests. 
Ken got an, an LBW that looked very harsh when he got about 24 in the first test and there wasn't a second innings. And then he failed on a green top at Lords in the second test and went back to county cricket. He had a lovely letter from John Arlott saying how disappointed he was that Ken had been dropped and that he would definitely come again. Mm. And Ken had two great admirers in the press, John Arlott and Jim Swanton. I have a quote from Jim Swanton where he said late in Ken's career, if anyone were to name a modern cricketer of test potential, who for some reason has just not happened to establish himself on that level, I would soon think of Ken Taylor. In those first two tests in 1959, when he was first picked, Ken Barrington was in the team. And I read a newspaper report at the end of the game saying that Ken Taylor looked much more like a test class cricketer than Ken Barrington. He played at Yorkshire. Ken's view was that Yorkshire were always pushing for the championship. And the philosophy, particularly when Brian Close was captain, was that you got your runs quickly to give yourself time in the three-day game to take 20 wickets. So the batsmen were always under pressure to score quickly. On one occasion, Brian Close took Ken and Phil Sharp, the opening batsman, aside when they were going out to bat at the start of the second innings to set up a run chase for the opposition. And his instructions to them were, I want 100 runs in 40 minutes. Don't get out and don't make it look easy. <laughs> well, as Ken will point out, these are not the perfect circumstances for getting a good batting average. And he looked at people playing for other counties, Colin Cowdery at Kent at the time, who were never competing for the championship. Ken Barrington in the 60s for Surrey, by the time they'd gone off the boil. And they could play their innings at the pace they wanted to and get their runs. Whereas at Yorkshire, there was this pressure to score runs quickly. It didn't apply to boycott for some reason, but everybody else, it did. So perhaps that was a factor that went against him. Okay, and that leads us up to 1964 and Ken's debut in the Ashes. In 1964, he started the season exceptionally well, and he came back into frame as a potential England cricketer. He was unlucky in that for the first test at Trent Bridge, shortly before the start of play, John Edridge pulled out injured, and there wasn't enough time to summon Ken as a replacement. So they made do with Fred Titmus opening the batting, mm. Ken was called to be 12th man. I guess if John Edridge had pulled out two or three hours earlier, Ken might have played that game. He didn't. He, went, he carried on playing county cricket. They had a game against the Australians where he hit 160 against them in the Yorkshire-Australia match. A great innings. And this took him back to the verge of selection for England. The test at Headingley, he didn't get selected. But then at the last minute, Cowdery had a bad back and pulled out and Ken got a last minute call and he turned up expecting to be 12th man just covering for Cowdery in case there was a problem and then shortly before the match was told you're playing had to bat at number six which was not his position he was an opener because they had boycott and Edridge opening he went in and he he took a bad blow on his right hand took a crack and was discomforted by that and basically didn't do very well in the game and never played for England again. It's a story of what might have been. Well, it really is. And as well as injury, there was a lot of chopping and changing during that series, wasn't there? Did you get a sense of why that was? I think that was the philosophy at the time. They just, 
it was nothing like as scientific as it is now. The selectors would look at the averages and pull people up. They wouldn't take into account that somebody might be high in the averages because they've got a lot of runs against Cambridge University or wickets against Oxford at the start of the season. So they'd be looking at the averages and thinking, let's give him a go and have a look. I mean, they had looked at Ken quite a bit. He, he played in an MCC game earlier in the summer, where, which was like a trial game and did well. Yes, I mean, they would be impatient. There wouldn't be the same philosophy of if we think somebody's good enough, we're going to give them a run of games. It's unfair to pick them just for one or two. Mm. They wouldn't be thinking like that. They, they, mm. They'd be chopping and changing far more. The other unlucky thing from Ken's perspective, and you mentioned this earlier, was that he didn't bat in his natural position at Head and Knee. How much of an impact do you think that had on his performance? I've got a quote from him about not opening the batting. It's like playing a left winger at fullback. You're not geared mentally to hanging about, waiting for wickets to fall. There's too much time to worry. The whole thing was a bit of a shock. I turned up on the morning thinking that I'd be taking out the drinks. And then in the second innings, he got to 15 and they had this Tommy Beavers bowling off spin. And he said to me, he was bowled by Beavers, trying to cut the ball. And he said, I was trying to cut an off spinner. I don't know what made me do it. You should never cut an off-spinner in your whole life. Yes, as you said earlier, as a cricketer, there's a lot of time to stew about dismissals and decisions that went against you. What were Ken's thoughts on the vagaries of cricket? He's got this piece of paper he's always kept, a quote from John Arlott that he copied out and produces every so often, and it reads as follows. Cricket is a game of the most terrifying stresses with more luck about it than any other game. They call it a team game, but in fact, it is the loneliest game of all. As he said, it was nothing like football. Football's a much easier game to play than cricket. The action and movement's happening all the time. You haven't got much time for nerves. You've got a job to do, know where you should be and where the rest of the players should be, and you're forever shouting it to each other. It's far less stressful. You can make mistakes and you can make up for them. They're more or less forgotten. But when you go out to bat, even before you go out while you're waiting and thinking, you're on your own. Mm. Nobody can help you. If you make a mistake, you've got the rest of the day to think about it. Yeah. Just to clarify then, so he was injured in that test match. Was he fit for the fourth and fifth test match? Was that him out of the series? I think he was out of the series, but I don't think, given that he was only playing as a replacement anyway and he didn't Mm. do well, I don't think they'd have picked him. Actually, that game at Headingley was a bit of a disaster for England because the Ashes was on a knife edge and we were on top in the game. We'd scored 268 and we had Australia 178 for seven. And Peter Burge, who batted number four for Australia, who was a very strong back foot player, a powerful man, Truman started bowling short at him. Truman bowled badly and he got 160 gave him a first innings lead of over 200 and they won. And Truman was dropped for the next test match, Incredible. which was, you know, quite a thing at the time. And they cleared out the team a bit on the mm. bowling side. And Truman, it was the best thing that ever happened to him because mm. they went on to Old Trafford, which was several people told me the best pitch they ever saw in their life. Fred yeah. Rumsey made his England debut. Mm. And Tom Cartwright made his England debut. John Price came in. Mm. And 
Australia batted for two days in a session, making 656 for eight. Yeah. And England made 611 all out. Truman was well off out of it. He came yeah. back to the Oval, got his 300th test wicket. And <laughs> <laughs> it was all so, planned. <laughs> Ken would have done much better to play at Old Trafford. Well, um, again, we go back to luck in sport. It depends yeah. which test you're picked for, doesn't it? I mean, if it's yes, on it's a right. batsman's paradise or if it's on a, a green top or a sticky wicket, it's completely different. Did Ken think he would play for England again? Or did he think that was pretty much it? I think he probably thought the latter at that stage because he was that bit older. One of the things Ken talked a lot about was how much easier it was when you were young, running out at Anfield when you're 18 and the world's before you and you're not frightened of failure and you haven't really understood yet what it's all about. Mm. That's much easier than being 30 and going out and thinking this is my chance. If I mess up, I won't get another one. Or if I don't score runs this season, I'll lose my contract or whatever you're thinking yeah. by that stage. You get to understand what's at stake when you're a bit older. Did he view the Ashes as, as a significant step up from those two India tests? Did he, did he view that as the, as the pinnacle of the game in cricket at that point? No, he didn't say that. He probably would do if you pushed it. But mm. I think it was just getting back into the England team. I think he was very disappointed that he hadn't made the most of his first chance in 1959. And to be given another chance five years later, all in a bit of a rush where he hadn't got time to prepare for it, not batting in the right position, getting injured, it didn't work out for him. I think he said of the 59 tests that he felt very at home in the team and enjoyed playing for England. Mm. He, of course, the one thing I haven't said to you so far is he was an absolutely outstanding cover fielder. Many people thought he was the best fielder in the country at the time. Mm. He taught Jeff Boycott a lot about Boycott was a very poor fielder when he first came into the Yorkshire team. And Boycott will admit himself that Ken was greatly helpful to him in that. He also had an outstanding throw. Mm. I think after that Yorkshire-Australia match, where he got 160, they had a competition at the end of one day to see who could throw the ball furthest. And he, I think Sheehan was the great Australian fielder, and he outthrew all of them by quite some way. You mentioned Boycott there. There's a bit of symmetry between Boycott and Ken in this series because Boycott made his debut in the first test, cracked his finger, and then didn't play in the second, and he returned for the third when Ken played. What did Ken make of Boycott? Did he enjoy playing with him? <laughs> well, he quite liked it. Ken's not somebody who ever has a, much of a bad word to say about anybody, but uh, uh, the first time they batted together, Ken was run out. The last time they batted together, Ken was run out, and a few times in between. Ken had batted with Brian Stock prior to Boycott coming into the team. They'd been the opening pair, and they were tremendously close friends. They roomed together. They still see each other now. They had an instinctive understanding. And if one of them called, the other went. You know, they just operated the system I was taught, which is one person is responsible for calling and the other person does as they're told. Hmm. Boycott had a slightly different system. He liked <laughs> to check where the ball was going before he risked running, you know. So yeah. Ken would call a run and he'd be looking around thinking, no, I don't think I'll do that one. No. <laughs> <laughs> Favourite people Ken played sport for yeah. were Bill Shankly and Brian Close. Ken was a dreamer. But those two, they were just out there exuding joy of the game and making everything seem possible. And, and Ken loved those people. He was very funny about Brian Close at times, yeah. but had enormous respect for him. Ditto Bill Shankly. Well, that was one of the great things about the book, actually, and Ken's yeah. artwork, that he played football for Huddersfield, cricket for Yorkshire. And yeah. 
he could name among the people he played with or for Boycott, Truman, Illingworth, mm. Close, Gray Wilson, yeah. Bill Shankly, I mean, Dennis yeah. Law. He could <laughs> he remembered Dennis Law turning up as this gawky fifteen year old from Scotland, yeah. thinking, How on earth will we sign this lad? Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't look anything. Yeah. And the first time they saw him on the ball, they thought, Crikey, you know, he's somebody. Yeah. And uh, so he had this just rubbing along with these, some of these greats of the game. And he played against Stanley Matthews when he was John Charles, the great Leeds yeah. footballer he got to know. And so, you know, he, he had insights into players. Either he would, if he'd played for Somerset or somebody, he wouldn't have had those insights in that mm. era, era. He wouldn't have been playing with the same quality of people. Yorkshire won seven championships in 10 years um, when Ken was in the team. Yeah. The last game he played was the... Uh, last game of 68 when they won that seventh title mm. and it was Fred Truman's last game for Yorkshire as well. How did he feel about retiring? Was he ready to retire because he had his art or was that did that still come as a bit of a, a wrench? No he, he chose to retire when he did. I think he mm. felt he'd run his course with it. He actually got a job out in South Africa coaching in football, mm. went into the townships and so forth and did that for a while and then eventually came back to England and became an art teacher in Norfolk. Yeah, I think he was ready to retire. He, he, because he started so young, what was he, 33 when he retired, and he first played for Yorkshire when he was 18. So he had had a good innings with it. And the football had gone down a bit by then. He finished with Huddersfield. You've got to, like his father said, you've got to plan for the rest of your life and you need to get on with it. And how right he was looking back in it and what foresight from his dad. I mean, that, that's what I find yeah. incredible about this story as well. Well, I think one of the things I'd want to say about Huddersfield at that time is that it was a proud working class community. You're going back to days when the working class were sort of kept down. There wasn't social mobility in the sense they talk about now. The upside of that was that in the choral societies and the sports clubs and the trade unions and all the activities of Huddersfield, there were people within the working class community of enormous talent and intelligence. And Ken talks about some of the people, Brian Jackson, who wrote Education in the Working Class, one of the founders of the Open University, belonged to the youth club that Ken used to go to when he was a teenager. And he was mixing with people like that. And, uh, yeah. and I think that pride that working class pride with that generation, I think that's easily forgotten. Uh, one of the things I found mm. so fascinating when I did my first book, interviewing people who played in the 1950s, and I deliberately didn't choose the people like Fred Truman and Godfrey Evans and Trevor Bailey. I went for the next level down of people like Ken and Arthur Milton and so on. They weren't playing their sport at a time when people ever interviewed them or made a fuss of them in that mm. way and so their testimony their memories their wisdom hadn't been picked up i did a book on the county history of the county championship the last season i covered was 2014 i wanted to interview the last person to make their debut in the county championship in 2014 mm. and it turned out to be a lad called aniron donald mm. who played for glamorgan he's moved mm. to hampshire now good attacking batsman. And I was seeing Hugh Morris, the chief executive at Glamorgan, and I asked, would it be okay to speak to Aniron Donald? He was just a 17, 18 year old lad out in Swansea. And he said, that'll be fine. He gave me his contact details. 
He said he'll be fine. He said he's had his media training. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think Ken Taylor ever had any media training. No. <laughs> it, was a, it was a sort of lost world, really, that I was yeah. stepping into. And Ken, he was earning about £15 a week as a footballer, yeah. you know. It yeah. was nothing. Um, yeah, it was a maximum wage. Ken went to the first, mm. Ken's unique, actually. He went to the first meeting when they set up the professional footballers association and he went to fred's first meeting when they set up the professional cricketers association yeah. okay well that's probably about as good a place as any to finish up with the conversation today stephen thank you so much thank you so that's just about it for episode two once again a huge thank you to warren saunders and stephen chalk for their illuminating memories and stories about bill watson and ken taylor different characters from opposite sides of the world but with much in common their precocious talent their all-too-brief forays into international cricket, their timely attacking centuries against the tourists, Bill's 155 against the MCC and Ken's 160 for Yorkshire against the Australians that thrust them into the full glare of an Ashes series and both left wondering what might have been. I must mention Stephen and Ken Taylor's book, Drawn to Sport, that Stephen talked about in the interview. To call it a conventional sports biography would be to do it a serious disservice. It's a collaborative, beautiful, poignant scrapbook that intersperses memories of Ken's life and times in sport and the superstars of the day with his highly impressive artwork. His sporting portraits are superb. Fred Truman, Brian Close, Brian Stott from his Yorkshire days, alongside Dennis Law, Ray Wilson and Bill Shankly from the football world he inhabited. It left me nostalgic for a time I'd never known. The book closes with Ken's words. It's been an absolutely wonderful life. If I had to come again, I wouldn't change it one bit. Next time on What's Upon a Time in the Ashes, we welcome Fred Rumsey to the show. That show could run and run because Fred is never short of an amusing anecdote. It's entertaining, forthright and not to be missed. Until then, this has been Once Upon a Time in the Ashes and I've been Graham Barrett.